0: I'm Allison Southwick.
1: And I'm Robert Brokamp.
0: He's a personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool and lead advisor on Rule Your Retirement newsletter. And I'm someone who likes to talk. (laughs) A lot. Today, we're going to examine the extremely frugal life with one of the most frugal guys we know, Sean Gates.
1: Hi, Hi, Sean. Welcome. Hey there.
0: He's a financial advisor with Motley Fool Wealth Management. And over his career, he's helped thousands. Thousands.
1: That's probably
2: high, but we can say low hundreds. Just kidding. Thousands <laughs> is perfect. <laughs>
0: <laughs> tens, tens of thousands. All right. He's a financial advisor with Motley Fool Wealth Management. And it's over his career, he has helped dozens of people manage their money better. He's here to open up his diary and share some of the secrets he's learned over the years in the industry of doling out financial advice. All this and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Meet Danielle Wagaski. Oh, man. I should have practiced her name. But that's okay. She's a stay-at-home mom blogger who, with a four-person household, lives off of fourteen thousand dollars a year. Her blog is called Blissful and Domestic, and her book is Living a Beautiful Life on Less. Bro, you stumbled upon her story this week.
1: Yes, it's an interesting story. Of course, uh, it's very difficult to live on that little. We've talked about before. Actually, whenever we hear these stories, we think, "Well, it must be a single person," but no, she is married and has four kids. So that's even more interesting, had to look into the story, and of course I thought of my good friend Sean, because he also is a very frugal person.
0: He is, but he is a single person. And it, you that ten, we know about. You yeah. tend to get, when 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 you tell people how frugal you are, they tend to say, yeah, but you're just one guy, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The immediate retort is, yeah, of course anyone who's single can do it, or anyone without kids can be cheap, but... Or frugal, however you want to define it.
0: (laughs) And yet so many aren't. So one thing that she does, well, that's the things that she does. She budgets everything. She makes her own laundry detergent. She only deals in cash. Netflix, no cable. And they bought a foreclosed home for $28,000. By the way, they own a house and are mortgage-free and debt-free. So, Sean, as a frugal person, were you duly impressed by this woman?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think anyone who can live off of $14,000, regardless of circumstances, is doing something right. Uh, it's, a, it's a very low figure, and figuring out which number is right for you is, is sort of how you succeed, I think. So my number, while I would deem myself frugal, isn't 14,000, but it's quite low relative to my circumstance, and it helps me get to where I want to go.
1: And What keeps you doing that? What inspired you to live that frugal?
2: I think the key thing for me is the motivation. So f- for me, the motivation is... Basically to get to the FU money, you know, just where I can determine what time, what I want to do with my time. I don't want anyone telling me. So if I woke up one day and didn't want to go to work, I could say, you know what,
1: I'm going to go somewhere else. Right. Um, and one of the things this woman does is budget. Budget. Keeps an eye on things, has a spreadsheet, 30 categories, um, gathers all the receipts and everything. To what degree do you do that type of stuff?
2: Yeah, so that is very intimidating, and I'm of the opinion that if you tell someone that, you will immediately turn them off because they're going to think, okay, well, I don't have that, and that will take me 15 hours. And and so I ascribe to using some sort of automation, a technology tool that will do it for me, and that helps because I spend very little time on it. It's just knowing where it goes, even if it's not perfect, is far better than not keeping any track of it. So I don't think I would go quite to her extreme, but definitely having some sort of scope on what's happening with your...
0: Do you use your... Mint or what do you use?
2: Yeah, for me, I use Mint. Uh, I like Mint a lot because you can aggregate your accounts and it automatically tracks. There's a lot of you know, applications that'll du- duplicate that. Um, but one of Mint's features that I like a lot is that it gives you relative figures. So for me, if I spend $100 on gas and the national average is $400, I know that I'm doing better if I'm worse, and maybe I'll look into it a little bit more, you know, what, I'm spending two times on groceries as a normal person? Well, maybe I should take a look at that.
0: For someone who this is not fun, like any idea of budgeting is not fun, how do you make it fun? Because I feel like for people like me, people like my mom, hey mom, we enjoy seeing a pile of money grow, but other people, they they don't find the reward in that pile of money. Not that we both are sitting on piles of money. No one, please go bother my mom.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I I get that a lot. And I, I think there is some merit to just people being cut from a different cloth. You either do enjoy it or you don't, but, but I think having the proper motivation is key, right? So instead of looking at it as though the motivation is having a bigger pot of money, it's what can you do, right? So money is the means with which you can do whatever you want, at least in our current society. So if whatever your favorite thing is, is spending time with your family, you get more of that if you can walk away from work. And so it's, it's thinking about what that money affords you and shooting for, for that number, whatever that number is. And I for
0: mean. you, it's just the joy of being able to say F you whenever you want. That's <laughs> I say, I say necessarily it, what you're motivated by.
2: I mean, I don't need to get to that number to say it. I say it have, having not reached that number. You say it bit. every day to all of us. <laughs> I've already said it to both of you at least three times. So you know, I,
1: <laughs> I mean, The one thing when people think about this type of regimen about being frugal and budgeting, they think, well, I'm giving up a lot of stuff. But either way, you're giving something up. You know, if you're, if you're spending all your money now, you're giving up spending that you could do in the future, maybe when you want to retire or whatever else you want to do.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's very, very important to look at things in terms of opportunity costs and, and how you frame that. So right now, I'm spending my time, more of it than your average bear, uh, worrying about my finances and how to get to that number so that on the back end, compounding works for my behalf and I have to spend less time on it. Whereas other people who are, you know, YOLO, living their life and spending it as freely as they want, um, they're going to end up spending that time on the back end, trying to figure out how to make ends meet further on, or you know, dedicating time to something that gives them more money when they don't have it.
0: So, best advice for taking that first step to a more frugal life: budgeting. Is that?
1: Yeah, you have to know
2: what your baseline is before you start.
1: And you'll also figure out. You'll see all the stuff you spend money on that you wish you didn't spend money on, the things that for some reason gave you pleasure at that one time or you thought you needed it and, and you didn't enjoy it as much as sitting in your closet or you went out to get to eat and then you were like, you know what, I could have just stayed at home and been just as happy.
2: Right. I mean, it, the best example is if you look at, right, so everything's 100% of something. And so when you have categorized everything and have it in view, you can say, oh, look, 55% of my 100% pie is housing maybe i should do something about that you know starbucks coffee is 0.03% i'm not i don't care about that where you can start to focus on the things that move the needle
0: right so you're you're the kind of person who doesn't care about the latte effect you say worry about the big stuff
2: worry about the big stuff absolutely
0: what is what would you say is the most extreme frugal thing that you do where you tell people that you do that and people are like what no
2: well so i mean one i don't do it anymore cuz my circumstances have just changed but i lived with two roommates to get my housing costs down dramatically. Um, And you're a
0: grown man, we should say. You're not in your 20s, living in a house in Adams Morgan.
2: I mean, I'm grown. I'm not a man yet, but (laughs) I'm trying. Uh, (laughs) I mean, in terms of like weird stuff, uh, I do make my my own dish detergent. Um, I bought a straight razor so they don't have to buy reusable razors. Um, you know, it's just little stuff. It's planning ahead so that you spend once and don't have to spend again. And
1: you don't have a lot of stuff. When you moved out here from Colorado, it was like a box and a suitcase.
2: Yeah, it was a box, one box and a bicycle. That's yeah. my possessions.
0: And you just moved in with someone. And how much did you end up moving into that spot?
2: That's it. That's it? It's still oh, yeah. been just still, a box and still a... still it. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I should modify. No, you're right. Uh, I have a mattress now. So a bicycle, a box, and a mattress. That's what I moved it.
0: See? You are becoming a man <laughs> growing Slow, up. Slowly. How i like to look into that little book. The one
1: that has the lock and
0: key. So again, Sean Gates is joining us. He's a financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, which is a sister company of The Motley Fool. So what did you do before you came here?
2: So, before I came to The Fool, or Motley Fool Wealth Management, the sister company, uh, I worked for uh, Ameriprise Financial, so I was a financial advisor. I I basically, except for brief stints on weird uh, ventures, have been a financial advisor since I went to school. It's what I went to school for, so it's been my career.
1: He's He's one of the few people who actually has an undergraduate degree in financial planning. It's actually a rare thing. Yep.
0: And bro, you have a background long before the Motley Fool of also being a financial advisor. Right, I was with
1: Prudential for a little while.
0: All right. So this this is me building up your pedigrees to talk about this. Great. Cuz you have come here today to open up your diary and tell us five little secrets about the financial planning industry. Dear diary, you won't believe this, but people actually think that professionals know where the market is going.
2: Yeah, I mean, this this one still blows my mind, and maybe it shouldn't at this point, but just because we're professionals doesn't mean we know what's going to happen. I, I just recently got off a call with, with a member who, I asked them, why do you think that that's true? And they just returned and said, you have so many analysts, Motley Fool must know where the market is going in the next six months, or have some intuition? And the answer is, no one does. No one can know that. That's the beauty of the market. What we do know is that we have a long-term time horizon and patience. That's what professionals do to achieve is They sit on their hands, and they watch compounding work for them.
0: Next page. Dear Diary, it's easy to assume that rich people don't have any money problems, but wow, woof.
2: Yeah, a corollary question might be, we don't care about rich people's money problems, but I guess that's a different (laughs) question. Um, But yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to assume that rich people don't have problems with money. A good kind of story from, you know, the trenches are doctors are a great kind of target because they're raised in a program, basically, where they go to school, they go into debt, and they're never taught money principles very well, and so... When they come out and they're making a good salary, they spend quite a bit of money. They really have no handle on it. They, they a lot of them probably don't budget, um, and they'll buy a boat, and then they'll end up defaulting on the boat, or they'll buy a house that's significantly larger than any real person needs. You know, they just, it, it's it's odd that some people just don't really understand. Rich people also have problems.
1: You can be good in one aspect of your money. You can make a lot of money. You yeah. might be able to form a good business, but it doesn't mean you're smart about. Everything else, whether it's budgeting or taxes or even having enough insurance, and you you can hear all kinds of stories about very successful people who never got around to having enough life insurance, and then something happens and their whole financial situation changes for their family. So, I mean, that's where a financial advisor can really help someone. Whether you're rich or not, because you can be good at one thing, but there are other things you got to pay attention to.
0: Yeah, I think, I'm, and to butcher a quote from like Morgan Housel, and probably someone else said it before him, but a lot of people, when they say, I want to be a millionaire, what they are actually saying is, I want to spend a million dollars. And the easiest way to be a millionaire is to not spend a million dollars. And I imagine there's also some amount of keeping up with the Joneses. If you're a doctor, your friends are probably doctors, and you're all making a lot of money and drinking. Fine wines on your boats, and I don't
1: know. One of the the biggest indicators of how much you will spend is the neighborhood you choose, because you will end up spending about the same amount of money going to the same schools, buying the same cars as everyone else in your neighborhood.
2: And it's easy to think you're going to be the person who doesn't fall into that trap, but we all fall for the same biases. Yeah.
0: Next, next entry in your diary, dear diary. I wanted to believe that all financial advisors are honest, open and transparent, but they can be shameless when it comes to hiding fees. What jerk stores. <laughs> jerk
2: stores. Woof. Yeah, so the I think an interesting story from this is when we in the business there are a couple different ways to make money as a financial advisor. The two primary are either some sort of flat upfront fee, either AUM or you know just an annual retainer, and then there is commissions where you get transactional-based money, and for transactional-based uh, monies, a big product is insurance. And so I've seen in the past when I've been working with advisors who are probably you know supposed to be doing something they shouldn't be, um, tear off the last page of the disclosures that show how much that advisor is going to make. For their self. Before handing it to the client. Before handing it to the client. Yeah. So that the client never sees how much is, is gonna get past A little kickback yeah. that they
0: get. That's horrible. Yeah. Um,
1: you always have this you often see the situation where someone is paying a financial advisor one or one and a half percent a year and they put the client in mutual funds that also charge one to one and a half percent a year. So you're paying two to three percent a year and you don't really think of it. And often the financial advisor will have some sort of uh, arrangement or something with certain mutual fund families. So they're not even necessarily putting you in the best funds. It can be um, a situation where they are putting more assets with a certain firm and then they get bonuses or trips out of that.
2: And just one thing I think that's important to kind of leave listeners with is it can start to sort of seem daunting to find a professional help you because there's so many ways to potentially be fleeced. One of the key questions that you should always ask when you're vetting a person for help in, as it relates to finance is, how are you paid, and how much money do you make a year, and what does that compensation breakdown look like?
0: So that, like, you should they should tell you how much they make a year? Absolutely. Like, is if that...
2: they, yeah, if you ask that question and they don't tell you, you know you don't need to work with them. And if you ask that question in that way, you get to the source of where all the conflicts could exist.
1: Are you saying you, they should tell you their annual salary, like their total annual compensation?
2: I think you should be able to ask that question and based on the response that you get can make an informed decision.
1: That's interesting.
0: Bro looks skeptical for all you listeners out there. I think you could
1: say how much, certainly all in fees I could be paying. Everything total for sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think try it. I would try it. It puts the onus a little bit on you and you have to be comfortable asking that. But I think you'll get better outcomes, potentially, than asking for the all-in fees.
0: All right, next one, which kind of gets to what Bro was just talking about. Dear Diary, I thought being a fiduciary meant putting your client's needs before your own, but I realized today that choosing a fiduciary doesn't mean your advisor isn't actually putting him or, himself or herself first.
2: Yeah, so in this entry... I would say it's difficult to change human behavior, and incentives drive all human behavior. And so, you can call yourself a fiduciary, I'm a certified financial planner, I am by definition a fiduciary, but if you put me in a place where my incentives are to sell a particular product, whether I want to admit it or not, I probably will sell that particular product more often than I would if I did not have that incentive. And so, a lot of organizations have incentive structures where they have proprietary products for, that they would like to put people's investment money in, and the advisors who work for that particular organization ultimately end up selling more of that proprietary product. It's just how it works, because they are incented to put people in that product, whether they're a fiduciary or not.
1: The, the good guys in the financial services industry are considered the fee-only planners and the preeminent organization for those folks is NAPFA, National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. Two of their past presidents have either paid serious fees or are in jail right now. Wow! And uh, Ron Lieber, the columnist for the New York Times, financial columnist, been on our show. Even his NAPFA advisor defrauded clients, not him in particular, and is now in jail. So even people who are supposed to be holier than thou, you still have to keep an eye on them.
0: Oh, that's scary all right last entry we're gonna read today because the other ones they all get into juicy stuff that i don't think you want sharing with our listeners
2: i feel like my diary is very loose like it just was papers flying everywhere. <laughs> our like, normally like a book
0: let's just go with this okay <laughs> dear diary get this some advisors measure their success based on their revenue per client their clients are people not line items
2: yeah this one always irked me when i was in a different role um And part of the reason why I came to Motley Fool Wealth Management is I'm salaried, so I just get paid for my efforts, and it's really rewarding in that regard. But in a previous role, uh, especially if you're, quote-unquote, and this might not be true in all cases, but an independent advisor where you have your own business, um, the the clients ultimately are sort of your widget. And, And so a lot of advisors look at them and say, okay, how much money am I making off of each client? And they try to maximize that. And it always just kind of bothered me that they looked at humans in that light. I mentioned earlier
1: trips and, and other incentives. Bro- brokerages were, will often offer trips um, or membership to the president's circle. Ooh. And it's based on being a quote-unquote top producer, yep. which means the person who made the most money, not because you did the best financial planning, not because you earned the most money for your clients, It's because you generated the most in commissions. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, that's all the pages we're going to read from their diary. But I want to go out on a happy note. Yes. So why don't you tell me a good success story?
2: So I think, at least now, I've had many more success stories since I've been with Motley Fool Wealth Management in that because I'm salaried, the way that I get to uh, kind of view the value that I've added to people's lives is dollars added the way i view it is dollars added to familial wealth and i've had many cases where i've been able to add millions of dollars to people's familial wealth now this is over a course of time but that always feels great you know i'm able to make these people reach their goals via strategies that i've been able to implement so it's really
0: nice does any story one story stand out um yeah
2: so i think one of the key stories that was a great kind of thing that this guy had worked for uh, a big corporation and he had a lot of employer stock in his 401k. And there's a particular planning strategy called net unrealized appreciation Ugh, where you can- This sounds yeah. like this is going to get ugly. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> Alright, let's go. No, no, I'm done. No, let's go for it. I
0: just... <laughs> no, I want to hear. I want to hear about net realization <laughs> 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 no, strategy.
2: It's NAPFA, I think, is the abbreviation. <laughs> no. Um, and so it's just basically a quirky little way you can pay potentially pay less in taxes by getting the stock out of your retirement account earlier. Um, but if you ever roll uh, or kind of roll synonymous with move your employer retirement plan to a IRA, you lose that benefit. So I was able to catch it such that he was able to do this strategy before he irrevocably eliminated that possibility and added hundreds of thousands of dollars to his wealth and it was just it's really great i mean he had two kids he retired that year it was awesome did he
0: send you a muffin basket as a thank you (laughs) yeah
2: unfortunately we're not allowed to accept gifts of any kind
0: has anyone tried um like turn stuff away at the door
2: i get a lot of hugs from random people that's always nice
1: (laughs) yeah you have to disclose that afterwards all their names are bro but (laughs) hugs are welcome
2: welcome.
0: (laughs) we'll hug it out after the episode
1: I'm sure there are other examples of where, when someone came to Motley Fool Wealth Management, or even in your previous role, you saw a situation where they can save money just by moving away from a, a really bad financial advisor, or they're in something like a high-cost annuity. Just by exchanging that to a lower-cost annuity, you can make them thousands, tens of thousands, even more.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we have a case we recently worked on, where a, a person was in an annuity, and there was a high fee structure associated with it and simply by having someone who's not incented by the sale of the product was able to move them into a lower cost annuity and it saved them tens of thousands of dollars. Wow! So it's, it's yeah, I think having that person on your side, I don't want to, you know, completely scathe the idea of working with an advisor because those are the things that ultimately we try to do. You know, finding an advisor that leads to those outcomes is really great. And I don't think you would find those outcomes if you didn't work with an advisor, um, at least not all of them. You just don't know what questions you don't know to ask.
0: Yeah. No, you don't know what little thing, like your net mm-hmm. what thing, whatever it was called. <laughs> That's exciting. I look forward to that. Taking advantage of that someday, maybe. Before we go, I have a really, really, really huge favor to ask you, our dear listeners. Hey, where are you going? Get back here. So, the Motley Fool's annual company retreat is coming up. It's called Foolapalooza. It's a fun weekend where we celebrate the year and plan for the future. You're not invited. However, I need your help. I would like to make a video to show at Foolapalooza to remind our employees that their work matters and they're helping people around the world invest better. So, if you feel inclined, could you tape a short video selfie? Less than 10 seconds. In this selfie... Go ahead and say your name and where you're from, and then deliver a message to all of us here at Fool HQ. You can go ahead and send words of encouragement. You could share your success story with everyone. You can give shout outs to some of our analysts like James Early or Robert Brokamp. If there's a message that you've ever wanted to get to Tom and David, or you can even make a request to our analysts to get them to stop saying, you know, all the time on the podcast. That was a shout out to our dear listener, Killian. Okay. That's my request. A less than 10 second selfie video with a happy message for our Foolish employees that you want them to hear. You should be able to email it to me at answers at fool.com. In return, I will send you a video, but don't get any ideas, it'll be safe for work. Alright, thanks so much in advance, I really appreciate it and I think all of us Fools here at Fool HQ will appreciate your message too. That's going to do it for today. I want to thank Sean Gates for joining us. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick, full on.